Hey everyone, welcome to Media Right, coming to you from the greatest city, the city that works, the Windy City, Chicago. I'm Mark, and sitting across from me co-hosting is Tana. Hey everyone, I am happy to be here today. We're going to bring you all things movies, music, theater, and pop culture. I'd like to thank you for downloading our podcast, and here we go with episode one. On today's show, we'll be looking at Iron Man 3. In our slip disc segment, we'll be taking a look at Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. In our music section, the latest albums from Face to Face and The Yeah Yes. In theater, we'll be looking at Green Day's American Idiot, the musical touring company, out right now. And a tribute to the passing of founding member of Slayer, guitarist Jeff Hanneman. We'll be right back with a review of Iron Man 3. Nothing's been the same since New York. You experience things, and then they're over. I can't sleep. And when I do, I have nightmares. Honestly, there's a hundred people who want to kill me. I hope I can protect the one thing I can't live without. There was a little bit from Iron Man 3. So Iron Man 3 is summed up in its title. It's a three-star movie. Tony Stark and the Iron Man crew, no Captain America or Thor here, return in a post-Avengers world. The battles in the Avengers rattle Tony, and now he locks himself away in his lab, building Iron Man suits, and when he does go outside, the only attack he fears now is a panic attack. The strongest weapon in the Iron Man films has always been its wit. When making these comic book movies about larger-than-life characters fighting impossible odds, it's hard not to stop and want to comment on how fucking amazing the situation is. Casting Robert Downey Jr. was a mix of a uh, stroke of genius and almost a given. Tony and Robert have similar stories, both coming from a family established in its given field, have had substance abuse problems, but have always been good people in the end, with their strongest weapons being their fast-paced minds. I like to look at Iron Man as blowing the lid off of comic book movies. Characters that are incredibly famous in the comic book live in their mom's basement crowd, but have only had slight name recognition outside of that. How can you take the AAA team to the big leagues and be the next Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, or Hulk? It had its roots in the first X-Men movie. First off, special effects had come uh, far enough along to keep, us, to keep up with the fantastical elements of comic books, which is easy to draw on paper but never looks good on the screen. A lot of bad blue screen and obvious, very pixelated stop-motion action. Mm. And step two, not being slavish to the source material. When going from one medium to another, what works in one doesn't always work in the other. As long as they kept close to the heart of the material, the changes worked. For example, in, in the comics, Wolverine is 5'2", in the film, Hugh Jackman is 6'2". Except for that, they kept to the heart of the character, and film Wolverine has become one of the most beloved antiheroes since Dirty Harry. So now we have effects that look seamless, and the characters that are believable on the big movie screen. Bring to the screen Iron Man. Iron Man 1 worked from the beginning to, to the end, and it was funny. Not funny slapstick, but some of the best dialogue in a non-Billy Wilder film. I laughed out loud at the jokes that came naturally from the dialogue. Iron Man 1 moves swiftly along with bright and cheer. Even in the dark and serious parts, the movie floated along. Starting with Iron Man 2, uh, to quote Wallace, his bungee lost its bounce. 
As I watched Iron Man 2, I thought to myself, is it bad that for some reason I enjoy the action scenes more than the drama scenes? And now after seeing Iron Man 3, I wasn't wrong. Now don't get me wrong, all of the Iron Man films have been great examples of what can sometimes happen when Hollywood money and incredibly talented people come together. I'm just not sure why the bounciness has slowly been leaking out. John Favreau, director of 1 and 2, has stepped aside and let Hollywood action writer veteran Shane Black take the reins. The only noticeable difference is in the final battle scenes. Too many shots of something hitting something. Was that a person or an Iron Man suit throwing that punch? As the Iron Man movies have moved along, they've tried to move in, into darker territories. Tony is more panicked, paranoid of what is out there, and uses his snark as an armor more than the actual Iron Man suits. And Downey is a great actor who can carry this. The roots of this character's journey can be seen as far back as Iron Man 1. To look at the film overall, the story is great. A new villain is on the scene, the terrorist known as the Mandarin. He's out to make life a living hell for America. And let me say this, Ben Kingsley's performance is hilarious as a terrorist. Trust me, when you see it, you'll understand why you want to have a beer with the Mandarin. But is it only the Mandarin out to ruin everything? What are Aldrich Killian's true motives and why are people exploding? What is extremists? Is it a new nanotechnology or a new hair metal band. See? A great story. I just wish Iron Man 3 soared through the entire movie as much as Iron Man 1. Maybe Iron Man 4, and please let this happen, can soar to the heights where ice forms on the Iron Man suits. If you're a true geek, you will get that reference. Hey everyone, now we move on to Slipped Discs. Slip Discs is a segment where we're going to look back on movies. Some were not well received on their first run, or the actor and or director has a new film coming out. And today we're going to look at Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. The Master is Paul Thomas Anderson's sixth film. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as Freddie Quell, a World War II vet adrift in the post-war America. His only two constants in life are his drinking and sex, thinking about it more than actually doing it. A hothead live wire, he drifts from job to job till one night when he crashes a party on a boat and soon comes under the influence of Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, a leader of a religious movement known as The Cause. Freddie seems to have found someone who finally understands him and whom he kind of respects, and Lancaster Dodd seems to have found his great student and a supplier of mostly toxic alcohol that he really enjoys. So Mark, what did you think of it? Well, I thought there was some good acting in it. Although Joaquin Phoenix could have lightened up on the mumbling at times, I had to turn on the subtitles. And there, there was some nice cinematography. There was a lot of talk about the 70mm shooting, but I actually thought Terrence Malick's New World was way more beautiful. But um, overall, in the end, nothing really happened in The Master. Uh, Joaquin's character is adrift most of the time, drunk and with obvious mental illness. Uh, and they're usually lost to violent outbursts. And then when he stumbles upon uh, Lancaster Dodd, this is supposed to be a character based on L. Ron Hubbard in the beginnings of Scientology. That would have been an awesome movie. But what we get, actually, is that they drink more uh, Freddy than Dodd. Dodd gives long ramblings of insight into the human mind and life itself. And Freddy drifts, drifts in and out of Dodd's help but doesn't stick around. And then he drinks and he fights and makes everyone miserable. And then you repeat that for two hours. <laughs> and um, although... Amy Adams is off to the side doing an awesome Lady Macbeth impersonation. 
But um, so even if you take away that this was supposed to be Paul Thomas Anderson's Scientology movie, nothing happened. Like nothing is learned. Um, it's obvious Dodd is pulling his religion cult ideology out of his ass. People ask questions, but for some reason everybody keeps on moving forward with it. And uh, as, uh, a movie about Scientology does sound interesting, but it seems like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't have the balls to go out and you know make a movie about Scientology, or actually he doesn't say anything about it. But I'm guessing because you know if Tom Cruise is your best friend, you don't want to burn that bridge. You know, ask ask his ex-wives. <laughs> so like. I guess in short, there was nothing, there was no subtext to the movie. It all looked very nice. Everybody's a good actor. It moved along, but like, just, it was inert after. It was 30 minutes of, you know, or it was two hours where it could have been 30 minutes. What do you think, Tana? Well, Mark, um, you know, I'm a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan, full disclosure. So I generally go into any cinematic experience, any film that he does, with the idea that I'm going to be wildly impressed by it and it's going to move me in some way. And I must say that this film did not move me really in any way. Um, it was a very inert film. I will agree with you on that. Not a lot happens in the two-plus hours that it's on screen. Um, the 70-millimeter thing that was supposed to be like a real, um, real calling card for people and cinephiles to rush to the movie theater and whatnot. Um, well, I saw it on DVD from Redbox. So. Same here. Yeah, same here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that right there wasn't getting me. But you know, I will say, and I do, I do feel compelled, as I often do with Paul Thomas Anderson, to say that he is an actor's director. And while I do think that the film itself, from a narrative context, left a lot to be desired, um, you know, the repeated um, beatings of Joaquin Phoenix and his violent outbursts and his annoying people again, and in this scene and in this scene. But the thing is, is I think. That, that it really shows his ability to direct actors to become the characters that they're playing. And what I find particularly interesting in, in, in one scene with uh, Lancaster Dodd when he is approached by one of his followers of the cause is that he, um, his... Oh, played by uh, Laura... Laura Dern. Dern there, yeah. Yeah. Um, his his uh, penchant for violence and penchant for some of his more animalistic behaviors um, is really bubbling right under the surface. Although he is this charismatic, forward-thinking leader of the cause, when he is challenged by one of his followers on a new text that he's written, he himself snaps very short of acting out as Freddie Quell does throughout the movie. And that's where um, Amy Adams' uh, performance is just really incredible. There's a really odd scene halfway through the movie where you're not sure if it's Freddie imagining or it really is happening, but they're having a cocktail party and all the women are completely nude. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's just out of nowhere, just... Well, what Naked movie women. doesn't need a little more nudity? Exactly. At that point, I was like, oh, finally, it's getting better. You know, something's <laughs> happening. But then in the scene following, uh, Amy Adams and uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman have a scene where she she more or less takes control of him. She tells him to keep it in his pants. Yes. Showing, yeah, the perfect Lady Macbeth in there. And also showing, yeah, that he's, you know, making this up as he goes along. But his urges, his drinking with Freddie, his, you know, mm -hmm, dalliances mm -hmm. with women. He's also, Amy Adams is also his second wife, too. Absolutely. So he and has as many demons as Freddie does. So maybe that's why they connect so much. 100%. 100%. And I think it's, you know, I think it's allegorical in a way, in the sense that every person is flawed and has their demons and have their, has their things that haunt them. And it's the way in which you channel it. Whereas Joaquin Phoenix's character of Freddie Quell, he's just you know, barreling through life with all guns blazing, um, really in touch with his animal instincts, the violence, the desire to be drunk and, and not really living with much idea of consequence, just kind of barreling through things. 
Whereas I think Lancaster Dodd is a very similar character. However, he has created and embraced this idea of the cause so he can keep himself sort of in line. You know, traditional ways of keeping yourself in line, um, like Christianity, let's say, or let's say um, just even moral code perhaps eluded Lancaster Dodd early in his life. So he wanted to create his own moral code in his own way of keeping himself, I think, um, in line. Because I think in many ways he can be just as chilling a figure as Freddie Quell is throughout the, throughout the picture. And I do want to mention something Mark said as well. Um, uh, you know, Amy Adams, I think, gives a great performance. I'm always one for understated performances, and, and I think that hers is understated, uh, but nonetheless as equally um, has impact as do Joaquin Phoenix and, uh, and, Paul, and uh, excuse me, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, and I'd just like to add that I, there's a throwaway line in the movie where um, uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Freddie Quell, tells that his mom was uh, a drunk and his dad uh, died in the crazy house. I forget, it was one or the other. And right there, that's Freddie's issues. <laughs> you know, that's where you're starting from. That kind of explains why he is how he is. You know, there is nurture versus nature, but like, that's a bad starting off point. Whereas with Lancaster God, you don't know where he's coming from, but we're told from outside that this is supposed to be about Scientology. So you're looking more insight to him. And actually, originally, I remember reading along the way that Paul Thomas Anderson was going to do a movie focused totally on Lancaster Dodd, but for some reason along the way, he added in the Freddie Quell character and he drifted away from Lancaster. And then we end up with the movie that we have today. And I, I just really, really just on that point, real quick, um, I agree with you. I think that there could have been, there was a lot going on in this movie and an exploration and a deeper understanding of Lancaster Dodd, perhaps his background, how he came to espouse and champion this cause, how he became sort of like a megalomaniac in many ways. That could have been a fascinating picture with Freddie Quell as a more, of, a more minor character. Um, but instead it becomes sort of Freddie's story. And when Freddie has a, a character trajectory where he goes nowhere through the whole picture and exactly. remains the same. Exactly. That's not a very interesting protagonist to follow. No. So Lancaster Dot, his backstory, where he is now and where he may go in the future, I could see where that would be um, definitely, definitely something to watch. One other thing, real quick, there is a scene where um, Lancaster Dot has uh, his daughter and his son and Freddie Quell out on a desert running through a motorcycle out into, out into the middle of nowhere. And I think that that was, and I imagine, a full um, use of the 70 millimeter format and nothing else i'm yeah, not nothing really happens sure. yeah he, they gotta, really it's sure. it's because it's later in the film and it's obvious that yeah. freddie comes in and out of lancaster's um you know spell and yeah. okay he's here and then he disappears and then like a scene later okay i'm gonna come back and then i mean yeah it looks it's a beautiful uh uh view of yeah. their relationship but like it's you're at the like hour 55 mark going Okay, I get it. We get on. it. And I really, like I said, I think that was the time when Paul Thomas Anderson was like, I'm shooting this in 70 millimeter. By God, I'm getting out to the desert with some sort of like panoramic landscape view. And I'm going to have this very stark landscape with supposedly all this emotional import. But when you've seen Freddie come in and out and in and out of, you know, his, uh, of, of the cause, at this point, it loses its narrative and cinematic impact. And it really is just something nice to look at which is unfortunately how I would wrap up The Master. I would wrap it up as something that I really love to look at. I love to see these actors dig their teeth in, but story-wise, nothing happens. And I'm on the same page with you here, Tana. Yeah, it's 
nothing happens. <laughs> I was glad I watched it on DVD and not in a the theater because I was able to pause it. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I was so bored I paused and I walked away because I knew nothing was going to happen. So on that, yeah, if you haven't seen The Master, unless you're a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, like the one sitting across from me. That's right. <laughs> that See Boogie Nights. See Boogie Nights. There, See, there will Magnolia. be blood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or there will be blood, of course, yes. Yeah. Anything yeah. else pretty much that he's done. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome back to Media Ride. We're going to take a look at the latest album from Face to Face entitled Three Chords and a Half Truth. Uh, let's take a listen to a song. Friday night, 3 a.m., sinking to that place again. You don't know me anymore. Lay my head down on the rack. Yesterday I just got back. I don't know if I will ever sleep again. Welcome back. Now, full disclosure, I am a face-to-face super fan. When I was 15, my friend Chris gave me their album, Don't Turn Away, to check out. So I put it in the CD player, hit play, and was blown away. It was fast, infectious, and the lyrics spoke to me. From there on out, I was a punker. I truly have seen them so many times, I can't remember how many times I've seen them. I've also had the chance to talk to the guys, and they are incredibly nice, and lead singer Trevor Keith has tons of hilarious stories. His lyrics may have a generality to them, but he is a raconteur away from the mic. So it makes it difficult to say this. What a slog to get through this album. Now, Face to Face is a punk band, and I'm sure they would agree with that. But as you grow older, you do want to expand from just the three-chord fast pace. You can slow it down, but still have a punk sound. Bad Religion and Rise Against have done so without losing their punk intensity. Now, in 1999, Face to Face released Ignorance is Bliss. And after coming off three excellent punk albums, one of them genre-defining, Don't Turn Away, the guys tried something different, and the fans freaked out. Now, I've never had such a visceral hate for Ignorance is Bliss as most of the fans did, mainly because they pretty much didn't play it live after the first few shows where the audience booed the new songs. So I never really had a chance to hear it live. Maybe they would have played better on, you know, live than they do on the CD. Now, looking back, Ignorance is Bliss isn't actually... A bad album. They tried something different. It was a little slower, but there were some great and memorable hooks and lyrics on it. I think, though, an entire album of slower songs was just too much for the fans to take. At the time of its release, it would have been comparable to, say, Bad Religions Into the Unknown for, the, for a what-the-fuck uh, type of reaction it got. Although a positive thing did come out of Ignorance is Bliss. It was their follow-up album, Reactionary. The title alone should tell you what they were feeling. 
The songs were a return to a faster punk, and it stands as one of their best albums. The guys recorded one more album, How to Ruin Everything, and at that point they felt the band had run its course and decided to break up. They went their separate ways and did other things, but thank God, luckily for us, they decided to get back together and they recorded Laugh Now, Laugh Later. Now I think their reuniting kind of overshadowed the album. It's a decent album, pop punk, not their best, but still an album to be proud of and songs you can pump your fist to at the concerts. Now this is why it's so weird that three chords and a half truth is so half-assed. You'd figure that after a long break that maybe they lost it, but Laugh Now, Laugh Later is their return album, and it's fine. Where did Three Chords and a Half Truth come from? The opening song, One, Two, Three, Drop, is probably the worst way to open a punk album. Slow. Trevor still sings with the same intensity, but it just moves along with little urgency. At least it has a chorus you can remember, One, Two, Three, Drop, as opposed to the other songs in this album. Luckily, with the next song, Welcome Back to Nothing, there are signs of life in it. Not as fast or intense as it should be, though, for a face-to-face -face song. After the blip of Welcome Back to Nothing, most of the album goes back to sleep. The songs Bright Lights Go Down and Across State Lines have some rousing choruses and better pacing, but the best way to describe the rest of the album is white noise. My advice for the guys is the lyrics are still face-to-face -face lyrics. Just drink a lot of energy drinks or coffee or, or bump a line before playing these songs to bring up the intensity. Artists always want to grow and try new things, but this is a major misstep from a talented group of guys. Now, here's my theories where this album came from. Remember how I said, live in concert, the band never plays anything from Ignorance is Bliss? Well, last year, Trevor and bassist Scott Shiflett did an acoustic tour of playing Ignorance is Bliss in its entirety. I was there, of course, and the songs, even in acoustic form, were good songs. Showing that maybe it wasn't the punk rock album people expected from Face to Face, but just a solid rock album that the band wanted to make. And it's not that bad. But since they did that tour between Laugh Now, Laugh Later and this new album, maybe the jinx of Ignorance is Bliss hangs over three chords and a half-truth. You just spend a couple of weeks on the road playing one of your most reviled albums and then go record a new album. Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe there should have been a little more buffer time, guys. Whereas Ignorance is Bliss is not a horrible album, it's just different. Three chords and a half-truth now has the distinction of being face-to-face's weakest album. Maybe over the years they'll play the songs from Three Chords and a Half Truth less and less, but I don't look forward to an acoustic tour of this album at all. Welcome back to Media Riot. Right now we're going to take a listen to the latest album from the indie rock group, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, entitled Mosquito. Let's listen to a track.
And we're back. So after dancing the night away with their last album, It's Blitz, the AAS are now hanging out in that New York City late night after hours lounge, chilling out with their latest album, Mosquito. I'm not a huge fan of the AAS, but they've grown in me over the years. Uh, because any band that has come out of New York in the past 15 years, especially Brooklyn, should be taken with a grain of salt. Hipsters are in such a rush to find the newest, coolest thing they don't take into account if it's solid artistry or a flash in the pan. I'm looking at you, clap your hands, say yeah. The AES has been building a solid repertoire of albums starting with Fever to Tell, and they have uh, have outlived their peers who also came about in the early 2000s. I mean, really, have you listened to the Strokes Is This It album since its release? I also want to say this. To me, the AES are what Susie and the Banshees would sound like if they started today. Karen O's vocals for some reason rings in my head as Susie Sue. Now with some bands, this is a major hindrance. Once again, looking at you, clap your hands, say yeah, you're not the talking heads. And for some reason, the hipsters don't own up to this major flaw in indie rock. Modern bands that consciously or unconsciously copy bands that broke up 20 years ago. I, I don't get it. So even though I listen to the Yeah Yeahs, but hear Susie and the Banshees, I'm still able to get past it and enjoy the albums. With that said, the AAS newest album has the feel of a soundtrack to an ethereal drama set in New York. And also, as hipster as Karen O may come across, she's a big softy, and also has in this album some beautiful love songs, especially the closer, Wedding Song. The album's story seems to be about wandering through the New York City streets in the overnight hours having odd encounters, from the gospel choir in the song Sacrilege to the crazy guy in the street telling you about his alien abduction in the song Area 52, then hopping a spooky ride on the, on the subway in the song, Subway. The one through line in this album seems to be Karen O's search for love with songs like Under the Earth and Slave, and by the end of the night finding it in the aforementioned Wedding Song. Also, one of my favorite songs in this album is the best odd encounter of the night. She runs into none other than Dr. Octagon, the extraterrestrial, time-traveling gynecologist and surgeon from the planet Jupiter on the song Buried Alive. So here's an album you can throw in with your friends with the horn rim glasses and you want to chill and kick back the latest whiskey or microbrew and talk about your latest Chitidrat adventure. So what do you think, Tana? Well, Mark, um, first of all, I want to just, the, the first thing that stands out to me is that you said that like, okay, you referenced the Strokes and said, who even listens to that album anymore? I may be old school, but I listen to that album all the time. Oh, are you serious? I really Whoops. think that okay. was a great album. One. <laughs> One person, yes. I'm often the only demographic <laughs> for a lot of these things, okay? Um, clap your hands, say yeah. Now, I also recognize their hipster roots, or the, the fact that they reach out to the hipster population or whatever, but there's some stuff I really like by clap your hands, say oh, yeah. So do I. I saw them in concert. I I do like As well them, did I. but yeah. like they're just so strongly like the talking heads. I just couldn't get past it. Well, and I think that reverence for older bands and reverence for like the talking heads. I mean, I don't know. It gets back to this whole thing when I was getting my English degree. Like, is there any true fiction? Can you write anything that hasn't been written before? Can you create music that has never been heard before and will be like a new oral plane for all of us? Like, I think that's impossible. So a reverence, there's a fine line between a reverence and a carbon copy. And I would say, I would argue that like, yeah, 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 you know, um, 
and uh, clap your hands, say yeah. And some of the bands that I hear coming out of this Brooklyn indie rock scene, some of them really are reinventing it in their own ways and reaching to like a new kind of market. I also want to say that for me personally, I get really touchy when it comes to the AAS. Maybe not as much as Paul Thomas Anderson, okay? <laughs> but I get very touchy because, you know, uh, the AAS, Fever to Tell, is like uh, is, is an album that I go back to constantly. I mean, Karen, it, it's raw. It is um, visceral, you know? It, it is, you know, you can recall the AAS, you can say that they're, um, you know, an art rock group, but it almost has like some punk to it and just like, like, you know, kind of just very this, like this sort of, yes, I'm going to say it, feminist power to it. I didn't want to say it, but true, you know, true. it's true. And I love it. It's a classic to me. Well, um, I have noticed that, yes, with uh, the first album, especially with Maps, like girls, I mean, it, I don't want to sound horrible, but it just seems like girls just love that song. And I understand the meaning of the song. It was Karen O writing it to her boyfriend to please don't go, I love you, and they don't yeah. love you as much as I do. <laughs> and I, it's a beautiful song. Although, I, I don't over the years, just for some reason, you mention that song to a girl, and her heart flutters. Right, her panties drop. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, for me, I'm more into sort of the, like, black tongue and, like, you know, rich and, like, you know, all those other songs that are on there because I think those songs are more raw you know and I, mm -hmm. I like my love a little dirty and so therefore I guess that's why that album appeals to me because there is a romance to it is there that there's a feminist voice but it's raw um but on this newest release let's get back to what we're actually supposed to be talking about the newest release yeah. by yeah 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 it reminds me a lot of the most recent bright eyes release and when I say most recent we're really going back to 2011 and the people's key okay um I had I saw him in concert I am a bright eyes fan okay I have a big bright eyes fan concert Oberst really do enjoy him but the people's key I think wanted to be this concept album about like outer space and sort of like other planes of being and whatnot in fact it starts off with um, a UFO expert talking about like area 51 and like aliens and all this kind of stuff and when I've listened to mosquito I feel almost like the yeah yeah yeahs were doing the same kind of thing they're trying to have a concept album that really belongs part of like b-side collection or something and I, I to me it's just a little too little you know, I mean, I, I like my yeah, yeah, yeahs definitely with a lot of the layering like you saw on like It's Blitz and the danciness mm -hmm. and the techno and the, the peeps and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? On this one, there's too much of that and it drowns out oh, to really? me Karen O's voice. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I thought it worked. Especially, I love Subway. It's just... You hear, you, they actually, I don't know if they actually recorded the Subway going through or just something about it just quietly, softly... Just it was spooky to listen to that song. It, it definitely evokes a feeling. I will I will concur with you there. It definitely evokes a feeling. It's just that you know sometimes when you listen to an album, and I guess again it comes listening to an artist that you expect or that a piece of their work that you've really connected to, like Fever to Tell. I want their work to. I want it to be raw. I want that visceral feeling. And this feels like like a little bit like light in its loafers, a little bit like icing on the cake. It feels just a little like this is great, and we can all chill to this, and let's like talk about the like last documentary we watched and all the troubles <laughs> in the world and stuff but really when it comes to like you know really wanting you know you reviewed face to face earlier and I mean you know I like my music pretty visceral pretty pretty raw you know mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean loud some people think raw means loud that's not what I mean it just means that I like it to really um, really connect with me in a way that doesn't feel like overproduced or sort of um, some sort of art half-assery and in this sense I feel like that this was like there maybe I don't know if they were doing some lewds or whatever like hanging out in their Brooklyn loft and they decided to do this music and and this is what the result was I keep on thinking you want to you wanted you wanted the yeah yes to maybe do an art brute 
album, the more you talk <laughs> well, about it, you know the what? more now it's that like, you mention well, this it. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, what you're describing is like, no, it's, you're describing an Art Brute album, well, actually. And, well, I, you know, and you're right. You're totally right there. I And I will never deny that. I mean, you're kind of right. But I, I mean, I love Art Brute. I love I love the voice there. I love the, the, the way that they put turn a phrase and sort of like the intonations and how it seems just very like, just like from, like coming from side of them and not really like thought out so much. And that's what Karen O delivers when, on Fever to Tell. You know, I mean, listen to any of the tracks on Fever to Tell. I mean, it's almost like, it's like guttural and like she's just kind of like raw, but there's still like a tight, um, you know, musicianship behind it. This feels like all musicianship, all production and not as much of that that raw voice that I want to hear. It was almost like Karen O was supposed to kind of float in with the music as opposed to really complement it or, or take it to that next level. That's what I would say. True, and as uh, this is their fourth album, so mm -hmm. they're growing, they're expanding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe for album number five, they'll go back to, because bands have a tendency mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, swing back and forth between you know raw mm -hmm. and smooth and raw and mm. smooth. So maybe with album five, they'll have something more that to your liking. For me in general, I I like the album. I'll listen to it over and over. I'm I'm happy with. It. After it's blitz, it is kind of a nice you know you can you can party all night to it's blitz. And then you can throw this on and, and chill out and come down. Kind right, of right. A and, bit. I, and I too may listen to it again, you know, particularly on sleepless nights where I need to be cajoled into my slumber. I might, we're going <laughs> to pop this on, you know, and then I'll have dreams of like, you know, art pop gods and, you know, subways and whatnot. But, you know, I mean, overall, aliens too. Let's not forget about the aliens. Um, it's the new thing in indie rock, apparently, aliens. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, overall, it's not a terrible album. It's just not one of my favorites. Cool. Well, and that's it for uh, Mosquito. Under the new media. Hey, can you hear the sound of hysteria? The subliminal mic, America. Touring around the country right now is American Idiot, the musical, based on the Green Day album of the same name. I just want to get this out of the way. I love this show. I think it's one of the best stage musicals of the new millennia, better than Book of Mormon. Before I just gush over the show, let me tell you about it. The story follows three aimless, antsy, disaffected suburban late-teen, early-twenty-somethings. Their names are Johnny, Will, and Tunny, and they need to find their calling in life and now. Johnny and Tunny head to the big city while Will stays behind and figures out what to do with him and his pregnant girlfriend. In the big city, Johnny finds a girl and drugs, one he ends up choosing over the other, while Tunny finds his calling in an army TV ad and enlist, which leads to tragic consequences. <laughs> 
While back in suburbia, Will goes on a pot and alcohol-infused self-pity party, forcing his girlfriend to make the choice. She takes their child and leaves. In the end, though, all are wiser and find their place in life, for the moment, and at a quick pace. This is a Green Day musical, so it moves along pretty quickly. American Idiot is based on the 2004 album, the same name, by Green Day. The album takes a long-form response to the realities of the post-9-11 era. Originally, they were going to make an album called Cigarettes and Valentines, but the master tracks were stolen, so they decided to make a rock opera. Now there's a leap I don't think anyone saw coming. A multiple award winner, it won a Grammy for Best Rock Album and was nominated for Album of the Year. Director Michael Mayer, after hearing the album, asked to bring the concept album to the stage. He was a good choice for a collaborator as he was the director of Spring Awakening, a show that deals with abortion, homosexuality, rape, child abuse, and suicide while using a rock soundtrack. The show officially opened on Broadway April of 2010. It went on to be nominated for Best Musical but lost to, wait, I mean robbed, by Memphis. Still waiting for Memphis to go on tour or for someone to talk about how great it is. Anyone? Anyone? No. I also need to mention this. I'm not a Green Day fan. I never really got into their music. I've mentioned in other music reviews that I'm a punker at heart, but Green Day was never really punk to me. They had some punk sensibility and style, but their music was too whitewashed, and they just sounded like a plain old rock band. I even saw them live on the American Idiot Tour, for free, and still wasn't sold on them. So I was a little apprehensive about going to the show, but within five minutes, I was won over. The show was done in a one-act sing-through. There are spots of dialogue, but almost the entire show was sung and danced. And I mean danced with a capital D. This is some of the best dancing since Gene Kelly. You cannot be out of shape in any way. Everyone is always moving, running, leaping, hanging from bars, and headbanging. A beautiful sequence between Tunny and a nurse during the song Extraordinary Girl, the actors literally fly into the air for a ballet dance. Now, I guess my issues with Green Day, the rock band, where they had songs about alienation, growing up, love, and what the fuck am I supposed to do, with some strong hooks, but they never really clicked with me. But through the filter of Michael Mayer, Green Day found a perfect place for its melodrama. Broadway. I've seen, I've seen the show twice, and I will see it again. To me, this is my rent. And I hate rent, by the way, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> I love the energy of American Idiot. The dancing, the sets, they look like what the inside of a 20-something's mind might be. Filled with TVs, half-built buildings, pipes and rafters everywhere, where dreams of sex, drugs, and rock and roll rule, but which can quickly turn to nightmares of excess and death. I also want to point out that I might be putting too much into this because I won't deny the story is pretty thin. The first time I saw it, I felt something was a little incomplete, and about three-fourths in, I realized that Green Day's music had found its best platform, but it's still Green Day music. And no matter how hard it tries to be deep, it can't because, well, it's Green Day. And also the stage story itself is universal to a point. You could have this set during Vietnam and still gotten the ideas across. Now all the actors deserve their paychecks too. I saw the equity and non-equity shows, and really I can't tell the difference. The thing is the show moves so fast the actors have to stay caught up with it. Everyone was uniformly good and in great shape, I might add. You can tell because the cast spends a lot of time in their underwear. My only true problem with the show is that it's too loud. I know, I know, if it's too loud, you're too old, but this is the one time where that is not true. I saw the show at the Cadillac Palace uh, Theater in Chicago. The Cadillac is an old movie palace from the 1920s converted to show stage musicals. 
The sound for those mediums are different. What worked for one doesn't always work for the other. And with American Idiot, they have a five-piece rock band on stage, and at times the music is so loud it overpowers the actors singing. I had the same issue with Book of Mormon at the Bank of America Theater. Also, the tickets cost too much for its target audience. I love musical theater, and people closer to my parents' age also love musical theater, but not musicals like American Idiot. It's just not something they can relate to in any way. A floor ticket to American Idiot is $100. Both times I went, the main floor had multiple rows open, and on a Friday night. Now I know that shows need to make money, but would you rather sell tickets at full price and have a half-filled theater, or cut the cost and sell out the theater? The target audience for this show is under 30, and closer to teen and early 20s. Are they going to pay $100 for a musical theater ticket, or $30 for Green Day Live? Now don't let the cost deter you. It is worth every cent. American Idiot is a musical for people who don't go to musicals. And if you don't like it... <laughs> It's over before you know it. This past May 2nd, we lost guitar great Jeff Hanneman to liver failure. A giant in the world of metal, Hanneman contributed lyrics and music to every Slayer album and wrote the songs Raining Blood, War Ensemble, South of Heaven, Season the Abyss, and Angel of Death. Slayer was formed when he and guitarist Kerry King met at a band audition, got to talking, and decided, why don't we start our own band, where King replied with a, fuck yeah, and the rest is metal history. In honor of the passing of Hanneman, we're going to test Tana's metal knowledge with a game called Metal Not Metal. I'm going to give Tana three band names. One is fake, the other two are real. Now, mind you, the two real band names are real bands. If you'd like to check, I pulled the name from the Wikipedia entry for the New England Metal and Hardcore Festival annually held in the Metal Haven of Worcester, Massachusetts. Ready, oh, Tana? I guess I'm as ready as I'll ever be. So, all right, here we go. So, here's your first question. So... All shall perish, rise from the ashes, napalm death. Which one is not a real metal band? Could I have those uh, selections again, please, Mark? <laughs> All shall perish, rise from the ashes, napalm death. I'm going to go with uh, rise from the ashes. Oh, my God. You're good at this. Woohoo! Well, first of all, I've heard of napalm death. I mean, <laughs> give me some credit here, okay. okay? Come on now. All right. So here we go with uh, question number two. Okay, so the bands are Cock Punch, Fist Fuck, or Pissing Razors. Well, all of those are, you know, extraordinary titles that obviously <laughs> did not come out of being high with your fellow bandmates or anything like that. <laughs> or so. they're not looking for mainstream radio play <laughs> in any way. In any way, shape, or form. Are these uh, Christian metal bands, Mark? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, that would okay. be awesome if they were. <laughs> yeah, really. Would really. Be. 
Um, I'm going to go with the pissing razors, I think, because just, you know, not only does it sound brutal, it just sounds like it's even too metal for metal. But I could be wrong here, no, so please tell me. The answer is fist fuck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on. Right. So close. So close. All right, here, let's move on then. So we have, okay, sorry, to read these out loud too, we have Pig Destroyer, Blood Has Been Shed, or Hellbound. Um, <laughs> I am going to, um, can I phone a friend on this? <laughs> I don't know. Let me text my mom and see if she knows. Let's I think ask she, Satan she now. Said, yeah, exactly. Could I, could I please chant and call in the devil to answer this? Um, I am going to say that, uh, pig destroyer is a little too literal. So I'm going to go with pig destroyer as the non-metal selection. No, I'm sorry. It is hellbound. Oh, come on. But aren't they all hellbound? No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, come on now. Here we go. We got we got three more for you here. Let's okay. see how we do. This is great. So, all right, the next. All right, here we are. Moving on. All right. We have Devil's Eyes, Three Inches of Blood, or the Funeral Pyre. Okay. Well, I actually want to just mention here because it, and I'm trying to just really grasp grasp onto the fact that I may have some metal knowledge. So I think I've heard of the Funeral Pyre. So if that is in fact the fake title of a band, I will be really humiliated because I think that's a real one. Um, I am going to go to with the um, what was the how many inches of blood or three inches of blood, Devil's mm -hmm. Eyes or Funeral Pyre. I'm going to go, I think, you know, it wasn't Devil Eyes, a, a, a movie with like J-Lo or something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say Devil's Eyes is not nearly metal enough to be metal. Correct. You got yes. that. Yeah. Yes. There we go. That's Tana knows some metal. All right, here. Thank you. Thank you. I All do right. have some metal cred. The last two. Okay. Okay. These are actual bands. <laughs> two of them are. Okay. We have the Gary Coleman Project, the Kirk Cameron From Behind, or the Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza. <laughs> Swear to God, two of them are real. Played at the New England Metal Hardcore Fest. Oh my God! The well, Gary Coleman Project. Yeah, I, just I was like going to ask for a this. repeat. Okay, yeah, let's just read them again. <laughs> the Kirk Cameron from behind, and the Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza. Well, I mean, who wouldn't like to take Kirk Cameron from behind? <laughs> so I think that really could have some appeal, particularly in the niche market of metal. Yeah. So I'm going to say that that one's real. I'm going to rule that one out as real. Um, the Gary Coleman Project, um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Although there was in Avenue Q, there was a Gary <laughs> Coleman, Coleman character yeah. played by Gary Coleman, right? Or supposedly Gary Coleman. And um, there is the ska band, the Mr. T Experience. Yes, of course. I know. I have mm. seen them, actually. Um, so uh, just to get in some, you know, sort of ska or um, indie cred there, because um, clearly I'm failing at the metal cred. Um, I am going to say that the last one, which I now, the name has escaped me about, something the, about dancing, tap dancing with Tony Danza. The Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza. Okay, yeah. I'm going to say that that is false. That is not a metal band. No, I'm sorry. It's the Kirk Cameron from behind. Oh, come Come on. And that was the one I thought for sure would be metal. <laughs> I just like reading these well, out loud. Well, you know what? Think too. of it this way. Anyone who might be listening to us, these are potential band names for you and opportunities. Exactly, oh, exactly. Exactly. Opportunities to really break, you know? So there you go. And all right, here we go. Last one. Yes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this is, the room falls silent. The room falls silent. And I have to keep a straight face as I read these out loud. Right, exactly. So, right, or totally laugh serious. on all of them. <laughs> yeah, totally serious. <laughs> Cattle decapitation. Oh, well. Goat whore. Oh. 
or Lamb of God. Okay, now wait a second. I have this. I know this, you guys. I know this. Lamb of God is real. Goat whore, or whatever that was, Goat is real. Whore. Cattle decapitation is vile and also not a real metal band. Tell me, Mark, am I right? It's a trick question. They're all real bands. Oh! So we'll give you that one. We'll give you that one. Kidding me. So, I also want to give you props for the like barnyard themed um, pairing of names there or whatever <laughs> farm you know pairing. It's like the the hellish version of Old McDonald at a farm or something. Yeah, and like <laughs> and just a list. I was going through other like there are other bands in here as Blood Runs Black, Skinless, Through the Eyes of the Dead, Hate Eternal, Too Late the Hero, Hate Breed, Hate Plow, A Plea for Purging, oh God Below. <laughs> I feel so angry right now. Can yeah, we put so on like I don't even know? Can we put on some like pop music? Where's where's some good like Britney Spears or something? I mean, I need something to lighten the mood a little bit. I think. But, uh... yeah, we'll fade out with a little Kelly Clarkson here. Thank you yes. for playing metal, not metal. Ah uh, yes. Sleeping here alone. You know I dream in color and do the things I want. Doesn't kill you, makes you stronger Stand a little taller Doesn't mean I'm lonely when I'm alone What doesn't kill you, makes you fighter For steps even lighter Doesn't mean I'm over Cause you're gone We'd like to thank you for listening to Media Riot. We hope you had as much fun as listening to us as we did recording this. We look forward to having more talks about movies, music, theater, and pop culture and keeping you entertained and informed. I'd like to give a special thanks to Greg Mayu for his technical help. Uh, that's about it. Tana, would you like to say goodbye? Well, I had a great time. More fun than I could have easily anticipated that I would have. And I also want to mention that um, this is a plug to go out and purchase Cattle Decapitation's latest release because um, you may be the only one. Um, but uh, <laughs> I may even check it out. Hell, I mean, I, apparently I need to learn some more about metal, right? So thanks a lot, guys. We, I've had a blast and, and looking forward to seeing you next time around. <laughs> Our media ride is brought to you by Ill Noise Production, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. So what's the problem now? This